Well, good morning again. I want to invite you to get your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus in chapter 30. And uh, Brother Bill Fesmeyer is going to come and he's going to read this passage for us. If you're visiting with us, uh, we certainly want to welcome you here. It's our practice to just let the Word of God speak, and we are working our way through the book of Exodus, and um, that's why we're in this chapter. So, Bill, if you come and uh, lead us, and if we could stand for the reading of God's Word, that would be good. This will be from Exodus 30. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubic shall be its length and a cubic its breadth. It shall be square and two cubics shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You, will overlay, you shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them, and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put it in front of the veil, that is, above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it, Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 garas, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half a shekel. When you live the Lord's, give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord, so as to make atonement for your lives. The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for wet washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which... Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn, an, a, burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring through, throughout their generations. The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices, 
of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, 24 and 500 cassia, according to the shekel, to the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting in the ark of the testimony, and the table and all its utensils, and the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whoever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person, and you shall not, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from, the, from his people. The Lord said to Moses, Take sweet spices, tacti and annika and gabulum, sweet spices with pure frankincense. Of each shall there be equal parts. Thirty-five, and make an incense, excuse me, that was number, verse 35, and make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you, and the incense that you shall make according to its composition you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for a passage like this. You desire to teach us, you desire to mold us, to shape us, Lord, even through what seems to be a very tedious text of Scripture. But Lord, you're not a tedious God. You're, pers- you're purposeful in everything that you do and you reveal. So Lord, give us wisdom now. What we, what we know not, Lord, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? What we are not, would you make us? And allow me as your messenger uh, to simply be your mouthpiece, that your people would grow Uh, to become more and more like Jesus Christ through our time in the Word together. We ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And as I mentioned in my prayer, this is another one of those passages where it just seems like, okay, we're talking about all sorts of stuff that just doesn't seem to relate to where we live. And um, I, I think that that's one of the struggles that we have sometimes when it comes to the Old Testament, in particular passages like this. But I want to convey to you that there is a purpose going on here. There's something in this text that is uh, resounding. And I would, I would suggest to you that the theme of this text is the theme of holiness. It is used to describe the various items uh, used for worship in the tabernacle. Uh, in verse 10, the altar, it says, it is most holy to the Lord. In verse 25, the oil, it shall be a holy anointing oil. In verse 29, talking about all of the items here, 
This shall be my holy anointing oil that they may be most holy. Whoever touches them will become holy. Verse 31 and 32. Again, talking about the anointing oil. It is holy and it shall be holy to you. And then we have the incense. It shall be pure and holy. It shall be most holy for you. And then finally in verse 37, talking again about the incense. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Friends, God is saying to his people that holiness is at the heart of his relationship with us. Holiness is at the heart of his relationship with us. That he is holy and that his people are not. Which, of course, creates a problem, right? Because God is coming to dwell with his people and something must happen so that he can, as a holy God, can dwell with an unholy people. And so God makes a way so that he can dwell, so that he can meet with his people. And that way, as we have already seen, is through the blood of the sacrifice. Now, friends, we've already seen the splendor of heaven in all the descriptions here of what's going on in the tabernacle. We have, first of all, the courtyard, 150 feet by 75 feet, with its entrance on the east side. Then we have the tent, or we call it the the tent of meeting, which is the, the two rooms. It's the holy place, and then there's the most holy place that has dimensions of 15 by 15 by 15. It is a square. The only other description of something square in which God dwells is the New Jerusalem. What we have here is a picture of heaven on earth in the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. And friends, as we continue on, there's furniture, right? In the Holy of Holies, there's the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top of it. In the holy place, which would be the outside part, that would be, there would be the table of showbread and the golden lampstand. And then, of course, in the courtyard, just outside the entrance was the altar, which is where the animal sacrifices were to be made. And then, for the past couple of weeks, we've been focusing on the workers in the tabernacle, the priests. And we've looked at, in particular, at their holy garments and their need for holy consecration. You get the point. These things are holy. This place is holy. This is heaven on earth. But God chooses to dwell with man, but he does it according to his plan. And so the proposition this morning that will will help to fuel us as we work through this text is that God's holiness demands that his people approach him only in the manner he prescribes. Religion seeks to approach God by man's standards and ceremonies. And all of man's efforts, although very elaborate, fall short. Man cannot get to God their way, but man can get to God his way. He has made a way. And we must take his holiness seriously. And we must listen to and follow his instructions so that we can come to him with confidence and assurance. Now, in chapter 30, we encounter two more pieces of furniture, as well as some other instructions that are necessary for a meeting with God to take place. So this morning, 
uh, we want to look briefly at these holy items together, and then we're going to reflect on some themes that flow out of chapter 30. And finally, we're going to take time to consider how God wants to meet with us today. And friends, I know this text is rooted way back when, but it is here for us today. It's going to push us to consider how we meet with God on a daily basis. Let's begin then with these holy items. They include two pieces of furniture, a tax, oil, and incense. So let's first of all talk about the altar for burning. This is the first piece of furniture in this chapter. It's not large, 18 18 inches by 18 inches, about three foot tall. It's made of wood and made of gold. Like the other pieces of furniture, it was made for transportation with rings and poles. It was to be placed in the holy place. That's not the most holy place, but it's the the, the first part of, of the tent of meeting. But it's to be placed right up next to the curtain. So there's a sense in which this particular piece of furniture is as close as you can get to the Ark of the Covenant. Now, what was its purpose? This is where Aaron would offer incense as a regular incense offering before the Lord. And it was to be burning perpetually, being refreshed every morning and night. And of course, once a year, Aaron would make atonement with the blood of the sin offering there um, at this altar. It's the altar of burning. Secondly, the census for numbering. The census for numbering. This might seem really out of place. Why in the whole description of the tabernacle would we have God commanding Moses to take a census? But he does. And and the idea of taking a census here follows the idea of what we see later of, of, in particular, men who are 20 years and older. Men who are able and ready to serve in the army of Israel. Seems to be the standard of what it means to take a census. So it's not just the men. They would would reflect even everyone else. But that's, that's the idea behind it. And each of them that would come would come and they would have to give what was called an atonement tax, a ransom. So friends, if you want to say there's no taxes in the Bible, it's right here in the Old Testament. This is a tax. You've got to come, you've got to be counted, and you've got to give a tax. Now, it is a flat tax, but it is nonetheless a tax. And what's the purpose for the tax? Well, the purpose is for the upkeep, the function of the tabernacle. Now, you know what it's like, right? You've probably been in churches where they're going through a building program. It's like, we want to build a church. We want to build a building. Oh, it's so exciting. Build a building. All right. Once the building's built, now you've got to maintain the building. And it's not quite as exciting to give money for the maintenance of a building. It's more exciting to give for the building of a building, right? But this money was used to help fund the goings-on in the tabernacle. Now, um, you know, as we look in the Old Testament, if we added up all the different kind of giving that, that, that the people were required to give, it's going to be somewhere in the region of about 23.5%. This particular half shekel was not a lot of money. It was the equivalent of about five grams of silver. That's about the size of a quarter. And it's worth about 
I looked it up, about $4.20. So about the same price as a quad venti latte from Starbucks or a Big Mac, for those of you that might relate to that a little bit more. It was a flat tax required from both the rich and the poor. Now, in today's culture, they would say, well, wait a second, that's not fair. The rich should pay more. But see, in God's eyes, this wasn't so much about the rich paying more. This is about the rich not being able to manipulate with more. You couldn't give more to somehow be in better favor. This is a flat text. This is, this is equality, friends, in the Old Testament, in the orchestration of the function of the tabernacle. Everyone was on the same level. And friends, in the church today, it is the same. The gospel is no respecter of persons. It is the great leveler. All, whether rich or poor, male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, all are able to come to God by faith and receive forgiveness, one's financial status, their gender, their liberty status, their ethnicity doesn't change one's conversion at all. And that's who we are in here. And it's a beautiful picture. And contrary to contemporary thinking, the poor, the slave, or the Gentile is no more spiritual than the rich, the free, or the Jew. All must see their sins as God sees them. All must repent and believe. All must humble themselves before the Lordship of Christ. All are commanded to demonstrate their faith by going through the waters of baptism. All are called upon to live their new lives in Christ out of a careful study and application of God's word. Now, you would be right in talking about the census if bells were going off in your head and saying, didn't David take a census? And wasn't God upset with him taking a census? The answer is yes. But the reason why David took it is so different than the reason we have here. David took the census for security purposes. God is requiring the census here for sacrificial purposes. Totally different. And of course, years later, God would work through another mandated Roman census to bring about the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. So there's the census for numbering. There's a basin for washing. This is the other piece of furniture that we have in this passage. Now, it's interesting, it's not, given, not giving any dimensions except for basically saying it's bronze. And, of course, the furniture outside is bronze. The furniture inside the tent of meeting is gold. But the bronze basin was placed between the altar and the tabernacle. And you can just imagine what would have to happen. Before the priest could offer a sacrifice, before they could actually begin the sacrifice, they would come in to the tabernacle area and they would go to this basin and they would go through some ceremonial washing, washing their hands and washing their feet, which symbolizes washing your whole body. Then they could go and they could uh, perform the sacrifice slaughtered the animal, put it on the altar, have the sacrifice. And then if part of their duties was to go into the tent of meeting, they could wash again, getting the gore, getting the blood off of them. You can just imagine this place was not a, it's not a pretty place. And the clothes that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, they would get bloody really fast and covered with stuff. And so there was a need here, a practical need, for the, the kind of washing that would take place here at this basin. 
But there's also a more important uh, spiritual uh, symbolic cleansing uh, that is th- throughout the process. So throughout their ministry in the tabernacle, they were to remain clean and fully devoted to the Lord. Every time they went, they were, they were just getting back to the place that they were clean. If there was any uncleanness that happened, they were getting back to the place that they were clean. And of course, we're readily reminded of the words of Peter in the upper room after he refused to have Jesus wash his feet. Just listen to John 13, verses 8 through 10. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. Now, it's interesting with the picture here is, is Peter's like, look, just wash all of me then. And as Christians, we have been washed. We have been made clean. We saw that last week as we looked at, was it 1 Corinthians chapter 6? You were washed. You were regenerated. This is what happens at salvation. But as we live our lives, there's a need now to wash our feet, to get, to get the filth off of our feet as we're, in a sense, the spiritual, the sinfulness off of our feet to keep our accounts short. That's the basin for washing. Then there's oil, the need for oil for anointing. And it's interesting to hear because we have these special ingredients for the oil as well as a description of how the oil is to be used throughout the tabernacle. The ingredients are a concoction of the finest spices, myrrh, cinnamon, cane, cassia, olive oil. A hint, by the way, is about the size of a gallon, in case you're wondering. Okay. And then we actually have the anointing. Everything in the tabernacle was anointed with this oil. And in anointing it, it was holy now, ceremonially speaking. And then everyone was anointed. All the priests were anointed. And they, through this process of the oil, were now considered holy. Then you have the incense for perfuming. We have the ingredients. There are a variety of sweet spices blended together by a perfumer with salt, and it was ground into a fine powder, and it was to be used at the altar of incense, also known as the testimony. Now, this was a a secret incense, not to be used for any other purpose or for anyone else. The priest didn't have a sideshow going on at the tabernacle. You know, when you enter the tabernacle, like so many places you go, when you go on vacation, you visit some religious site, there's always some kind of a bookstore or some kind of a shop there, right? And if this were happening in the tabernacle, they would be off there, you know, selling their eau de tabernacle, right? Or their essential tabernacle oils. Man always has a way of marketing religion. And God says, no, 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 you can't do that. It's not going to happen. This is only for the tabernacle. Now, you can just imagine what the incense was used for. The smell of the blood and the flesh and the entrails, and the sweat, and the dung, and you could go on and on, would have been horrendous. And with the incest, this incredible smell of the tabernacle, it would cover that smell and would provide a sweet aroma. One commentator says it this way, it was important that Yahweh's sanctuary had a fragrance that was wholesome, pleasant, and altogether distinctive. 
The odor of a unique incense was one of the things that marked it as the house of Yahweh. So, so when someone was near the tabernacle, or even going into the tabernacle, they would know by virtue of its smell that this was unique. This was God's incense. But there was something more going on. Again, I want you to, to get the picture of some of the images that we've seen already about God. Remember when, when the, the, some of the men went up to the mountain and then Moses went on and they looked up at the top of the mountain and it was covered with what? It was a cloud. Here we have this incense in this tent of meeting, in the first, this first section, and with the incense comes smoke that would fill that whole area and it would be thick. And friends, it's, it's a reminder that like, like the cloud on the mountain, there is this smoke that fills this area and reminds us of the very presence of God. You just can't see him, but he is there. And friends, the tabernacle constructed according to God's instructions was to be the portable place on earth where God could meet with his people. It was the place where heaven came uh, to earth in the most holy place, and as such, it was a place of holiness. And that holiness is requ requires a solemn and deliberate symbolic holiness. So all of the tent structure, the furniture, the utensils, the oils, the incense, were all treated as holy to the Lord. And all the priests, with all their garb and all their function, was considered to be holy to the Lord. Why? Because God himself is holy. The only way we can have access to God in his holiness is by virtue of his way, his plan that's through the blood. That's why all these things are so intricate because God has laid out a methodology and a way that you can come before him. Now friends, this is so incredibly important. We'll get to that in a little bit, but we need to see then there's a purpose for all these different items. But I would like to draw your attention now as we move into the second point here that I'm calling holy warnings. You may have caught that I didn't deal with everything in this text yet. And the reason I didn't deal with everything in this text is because one of the things that we have with each item is a warning. God's holiness that demands that we pay close attention to his instructions. And if we don't, if we ignore them, if we take things lightly, there are consequences, and those consequences can be horrendous. In verse 9, we find, in talking about the altar, it says, you shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering. You shall not pour a drink offering on it. Unauthorized incense. Does that remind you of anything? Two guys who were very much a part of these instructions in the first implement implementation of them are the two sons of Aaron. He had four, but there were two sons, Nadab and Abihu. When you find in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, that they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Now just listen to what it says. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Now we're not told specifically what it was that was unauthorized, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those 
who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. That's not a small statement, Aaron held his peace. His sons offended God because they didn't follow God's instructions. They took lightly his holiness. Then as we look next at the the census, we find that if the money was not given, if the ransom tax or the, the atonement tax was not paid, there likely could be a plague. It's what it says in verse 12. When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each of you shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you remember them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Did the Israelites know something about a plague? Did they know something about God warning about a plague if you didn't do something? Absolutely. Third, and talking about the basin in verse 20, the the concern here was that if you did not wash with water before you served either at the altar or the basin or wherever it might be, you run the risk of death. what it says there at the end of verse 20. When they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. It's a warning. Next one. As it relates to the oil in verse 33. Whoever compounds any like it or whatsoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. So if they did take this oil and somehow you know, say, well, I'm going to sneak some out of the tabernacle and give some to my wife or give some to my cousin or Mother's Day is coming up and give it to my mom. It says they will be cut off from the people. Now, friends, if you're a Hebrew, that's the last thing you want to have happen. To not be considered one of the people was not something anyone considered a favorable situation at all. Friends, it's the last thing. The oil has one purpose and one place for its purpose to be realized, to anoint all the furniture, utensils, and the priests in the tabernacle. To go beyond that is an offense to God. Now see, the way I'm speaking in today's culture, people just like scratch their heads. Why? Why would God be so concerned about that? Because he said so. He is holy. The last one is, is, is almost identical about the incense, verse, uh, verse 30, 38. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. Again, the same is true here with the incense. If you steal God's, in a sense, KFC formula and look to use it for yourself, you will be cut off from the people. Now, friends, God isn't messing around, is he? What he says here is serious. He means business. His holiness is not something that God's children, especially those in leadership, should take lightly. Now, in light of the book of Exodus, here's the alternative. God doesn't dwell with his people. God doesn't speak to his people. God isn't present with his people. And his people don't know him. That is not good for Israel. And that is not good for mankind. God comes to dwell 
to speak, to meet with, to dwell with, so that his people may know him. And when his people know him, that they can praise or they can proclaim the glories of who he is to the nations. So in order for God to dwell with his people, something must be done about the fact that he is holy and we are not. So he lays out the process by which we come to him through blood, but also through various ceremonies, each designed to demonstrate our cleansing and ceremonial or symbolic holiness. And we come now to the third point. And here I have not holy warnings, but there are also in this context, in this chapter, holy encouragements. And they're encouragements that they're really kind of one-word statements that we find throughout here, or I've actually taken one and kind of come up with one to summarize some things. But I want you to notice a repeated statement we find four times in chapter 30. It's found in verse 11, verse 17, verse 22, and verse 34. It's this statement. The Lord said to Moses. Now, when you read that, don't just say, well, it's just the narrator just nudging things along. No, 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 no. God is Speaking. When God speaks, we pay attention. And we should be encouraged by the fact that God even is willing to speak to us. He speaks so that God's people can know him. What he says about himself. What he desires for us. And in particular, what we must do in order to meet with him. And so we must have ears to listen. But too often. Although people have God's word clearly revealed, they would rather bypass what it says and replace it with something mystical, their feelings, or or some kind of perceived direct revelation from him by by virtue of, they would say, the Holy Spirit, or or, or put, put too much emphasis on their experience as if God is somehow speaking to them through the experience. And as a result, they distort the teachings of Christ because they are relying on their mysticism for truth over and above the scriptures. You try and talk with someone who believes that way. They had a dream. They, they, They had an ominous day. Remember last year when we had the smoke and it was on a Wednesday, I think, and it was just dark and it was orange and I joked that there were religions that were started that day. Because that's what happens. These things happen and people are like, oh, you know, they experience. Yeah, we all experienced it. And we know who's behind it. We know the science behind it. So maybe we're a little ahead of other people that maybe didn't know the science behind it. But we know that God still reigns. Or maybe it's, you know, the image of Jesus on a piece of toast. These things happen. And people are far more convinced by that than they are willing to pick up their Bibles and read them. This is the problem. This is mysticism, friends. God is calling us to listen to him, not to bypass Scripture with the sensational, but to listen carefully to what he has to say. Listening. Secondly, Atonement. You see throughout this passage, six times in our text, atonement is mentioned. Atonement comes by the blood of the sin offering in verse 10, where the horns of the altar of incense are applied with blood. Atonement also comes as a result of the ransom 
offering given to God. That this would pay for their ransom and therefore atone them. So the word atonement means to cover over someone's debt. So when the, the blood of the sacrifice was splashed on the altar or on the priest, it was a temporary covering for their sins so that the priest could come and serve in the temple. It was a temporary appeasement, so to speak. And of course, this looks forward to Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross. And here it was a full and final sacrifice that covers our sin. And his covering is not temporary, but eternal. And all of the atonements that happened through the Old Testament, all the sacrifices, all the blood that was, that was spilled were only temporary atonements pointing to the one sacrifice that would bring everlasting atonement. So this word atonement is critical. It's a very important word throughout Scripture. Then, of course, I mentioned it already. It's the word ransom. They're kind of very, very close, but it's specifically in the text here. To ransom means to pay for something. And so the census required one half shekel ransom payment for all who were numbered. So in bringing their half shekel ransom money, they were providing for the needs of the tabernacle and for their own atonement. They were paying a price for temporary covering. And the last word, of course, is washing. And again, these, these, are, all, these are all words that are, are spiritual in nature. They're theological words. They help us understand something about what is going on. And this before and after washing, before they would go and offer the sacrifice, and after the sacrifice was done, they come to the altar, uh, or they come to, the, uh, to the, um, the basin, and they wash themselves ceremonially again so that they can be clean before God. These are encouragements, friends, because they're, they're words that describe the way by which we come to God and pursue holiness. And of course, specifically, this is for the priests. Now the question is this. How do we go from chapter 30 of Exodus to what God wants us to do today as Christians? So here's the fourth point, holy connections, holy connections. We've already seen how the sacrifice of Christ allows us to come boldly to the throne of grace. And I want to draw your attention to what we've looked at many times, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. See, there's the way that is through the, his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I mean, there's a lot of similar language here, isn't there? But he's speaking here now to believers. This is how you come. These are the things that are important to you. Now, these are all things that happened at our conversion through the sacrifice of Christ on the altar. But how do we continue to come before God in holiness? How do we come daily before God and clean, uh, be clean, and we're smelling good, so to speak, before him? Well, the answer is really two things. And this is such a Sunday school answer, but I don't want you to see it as it. I want, to see, I want you to see it as a greater than Sunday school answer. It is by the word of God and prayer. And friends, this, this flows right out of this text. Because the images that are used in the New Testament to talk about the Word of God and to talk about prayer are rooted in this text. Let's think first of all about prayer. 
The fragrant smoke from the burning incense symbolized prayer in the biblical world. Just listen to the following passages. I just have four that I want to draw your attention to. Psalm 141, verse 2. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. In Luke 1, we find uh, Zechariah, who is the father of would-be John the Baptist, who's going into the, 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 the temple to, you know, to, to perform the duties as priest. It's his turn to do that. And his job in particular, we're told, is to burn incense. And we see that in verse 10 of Luke 1, the connection of burning incense with the prayer of God's people. It says, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So the idea here is this incense and prayer come together. All right, some further examination, the book of Revelation in chapter 5 and verse 8. Here's what we read. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lord, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. See, incense, prayer, incense, prayer. And then again, in Revelation chapter 8 and verse 3, here's what we read. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So the offerings of incense is a picture and a reminder of our prayers. Therefore, we come before God in prayer. Friends, it is a holy privilege for God's people to approach him in prayer. But are we being faithful to that privilege? Now here's the thing with prayer. When I ask that question, are we being faithful? Everyone's heart drops. Because we just always feel like we just don't, we don't do enough. And friends, I want to I encourage you in your own personal Prayer. Is prayer an essential part of your Christian life? Do you take time to personally come before God in prayer for the purpose of confession and repentance or for the purpose of seeking God's wisdom, help, and strength to face whatever is coming your way? I know we talk about prayer and that we, we talk a good, take a good bit of time to come before God in prayer on a Sunday morning, but in the rhythm of your life, outside of the corporate gatherings of God's people, and I want to say outside of the sitting down around the table and praying before your meal, are you taking time just to sit down and talk to God, to pray? This is what this is throughout Scripture, friends. It's modeled by Jesus. It's modeled by the apostles. We see it in the Old Testament. It's there. It's all part of the incense that's going up to God. There's also corporate prayer. When one of our elders is standing up here before you on a Sunday morning and we are praying, are you engaging in that prayer? Are you thinking about what is being said and affirming that prayer in your heart as that person is leading you in that prayer? Now, friends, hear how we, how we pray on, typically on Sunday mornings. There's a call to worship where we get ourselves, in a sense, ready in our hearts to worship God. There's a prayer of praise, usually at the end of the song service, that is a time for, for joyful celebration and adoration for what we have just sung about, to praise him for who he is and what we have, we have just rejoiced over. 
Then, as an elder gets up after the announcements, we have a pastoral prayer. That is typically for the needs of our church, the needs of our community, the needs of our our missionary partners, as well as for the leadership in our country. Then there's a prayer of help. I did that at the beginning of the sermon because I need help, and so do you. That's why we stop and we pray. We say, God, we want to be fed. We want to learn. We want to grow. And at the end, there's a prayer of commitment. Lord, help us to do these things. Now, friends, this is all corporate prayer. Are we engaged in that? It's a very important dynamic and aspect of the life of a Christian. And then, of course, there's group prayer, which happens in the small groups, but in particular on Sunday morning at 9, 9.15 in the morning in the nursery, where they gather to pray for specific needs for the people in the church. And you are invited to come and be a part of that. This is not a plug. I'm just saying, look, prayer is, a, is all about what we're supposed to be doing as believers. Is prayer something that is essential in your life? We have the picture here of of a means by which we come before God. We have the privilege to come before God in prayer. Secondly, there's the Word of God. The Word of God. Ephesians chapter 5, you know this passage, I'm sure, so well. But it gives us a beautiful picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. And here Paul uses the illustration of marriage to communicate what God is doing with his church. I'm going to pick it up in verse 25. He says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Friends, this is all happening through the washing of the water by the word. Please notice, this washing of the water by the word is not symbolic, it's not ceremonial, it is actual cleansing that comes by the washing of one's life with the word. When the word of God is having its way in our hearts, it's filtering out the sin, it's exposing things that are there, we are drawn then to actual cleansing, becoming more and more like God wants us to be. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So the word of God, friends, gets to all those places that religion cannot get to. Can't get to your heart. Can't get to those, those, those places in the inner man. It penetrates the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. It exposes our thoughts. It exposes our intentions. It reflects it back to us so that we will see ourselves for who we actually are and then turn to God and say, God, I see my sin. Now I confess it to you. And I repent of my sin. Forgive me. Restore me. When the word of God is cleansing, it's, it's, it's penetrating deep. James chapter 1, you know the passage very well. Verse 22 and following, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own, your, yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and once forgets what he was like. Our sinful tendency, friends, is to glance at God's word and walk away and forget. But the disciplined disciple learns the joy of looking intently 
and appreciating that God is producing holiness in their lives. And so verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, that's the word of God, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. That blessing is growth, it's maturity, it's Christ-likeness. Now, friends, it shouldn't be a hard sell, but God isn't trying to reign on our parade. Did you know that? He's not up in heaven saying, how can I spoil their lives? What can I throw out there just to kind of mess things up? Now, you might get that in Greek mythology, but not in the one true God in his relationship with mankind. He's not trying to reign on your parade. He is truly seeking to bless us so that Christ can present us blameless to the Father through the washing of the word of God and the privilege and the wonder of prayer. As we just bring things to a close, this morning we rejoice together in observing three people testify of their faith in Christ and desire to proclaim to the world um, proclaiming it to the world by going through the waters of, of baptism. And as baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, it is also a picture of how, like Christ, we've died to sin and are raised in newness of life. Our, our sins are forgiven. Christ has paid the ransom. Uh, the atonement is eternal, yet we are called to live that new life in holiness before the Lord. This is what we're called to. This is who we are. We are now gods, and he wants us to live out our lives in holiness. So I'd like to end our time this morning with some encouragements by sharing with you three quotes to help us to continue that journey. Three quotes from three different men. Um, You probably know at least two of them. But I think these are helpful and kind of summarize what we've been looking at this morning. First of all, John Brown, who's a 19th century Scottish theologian, this is what he says, holiness does not consist in mystic speculations, enthusiastic fervors, or uncommanded austerities. It consists in thinking as God thinks and willing as God wills. Now, I know those words and you're like, what in the world is he talking about? Mystic speculations are things like visions and dreams and feelings and subjective stuff like that. Enthusiastic fervors are like legalistic pursuits. Uncommanded austerities are like the kind of zealous monastic behavior. God never said, go off and be a hermit for the glory of God. But somehow man has come up with that as this is what you need to do. God never said that. Holiness doesn't doesn't come by these things. It comes by us thinking as God thinks and willing as God wills. That's good stuff, friends. Your goal is to think like God thinks. Your goal is to act like God acts. It's helpful. Secondly, there's C.S. Lewis in Letters to an American Lady. Here's what he says. How little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. And you think about someone, when you think about a holy child of God, someone comes to your mind. And that someone likely is a wonderful person that is irresistible to you. You appreciate them. You love them. Because their holiness is wonderful. But hear this also. 
When God's people pursue holiness, they are also irresistible, even to the world that hates them. Yes, the world hates them because they're holy, but the world also in their minds is thinking, this is a person of integrity. There's something admirable about about them. So how little people know who think that holiness is still, usually you talk about holiness, it's like, oh, no. Oh, I should have stayed home today, you know. No, friends, when you, when you see it, it's irresistible. It's wonderful. Deal Moody. A holy life will make the deepest impression. Lighthouses blow no horns. They just shine. What wonderful imagery. A holy life will make the deepest impression. Lighthouses blow no horns. They just shine. Friends, do you want to impact this world that we're living in today? It is a dark and darkening world. Then shine the light of holiness for all to see. You might suffer because of it, but you will be faithful in radiating the holiness of God to a world that needs him. Prayer and the word. Sunday school answers. Read your Bible, pray every day, pray every day. Right, you know what I'm talking about, right? Oh, there's a reason why it turned into a song. Because it is at the heart of who we are as God's children. Lord, help us today. Help us to see the importance and the beauty of your holiness. Not to take it lightly, but Lord, to embrace the fact that it is by your way that we are able to come and worship you and bow down before you, lift our hands before you. Well, we can come boldly to the throne of grace because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. But Lord, you also call us to live and to live our lives reflecting this holiness. And so, Lord, may we take advantage of this wonderful privilege that we have to come and offer prayers to you. Like incense rising up to you, Lord. They, they, they go up to you. You hear them. You see them. You know them. You respond to them. But Lord, help us also wash ourselves with the word of God, to love it, to learn it, to study it. But Lord, not just simply to be academically involved, but to allow the living and breathing word to have its way in us. Lord, help us to be those lighthouses that will shine brightly for the world to see, to be irresistible, to do your will, Lord, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen.